Atak. Atata. My own cry jolts me out of the dream. The arches of the high bridge, the scrubby sloped banks, vanish like blown snow in the night. I am in a strange bedroom, five years later, pitch dark but for the faint reflected flicker of a distant lamplight. Through the wall comes the smell of baking bread, the sound of chairs scraping on a wooden floor. It is the cafe next door to the pension in Quebec City, and I am in a first floor room sharing a wall with it. Someone has moved me while I was asleep. At this point, frankly, I'm surprised to be here still. Madame Joliet surely must have wanted to throw me out. I'm no doubt in debt to the priest for his persuasive powers. I sit up. Outside, I see the light of the unrisen sun already bruising the horizon. My fever has broken, and I feel well-rested for the first time in days. Outside, a light moves along the river, a supply ship. The Eskimos know that the dead come back. Matilda was the only one who took me seriously. My father was there, outside the pension, along the river. He was on top of the high bridge. Each time he was trying to tell me something. Was he angry because of what happened to him at the museum? Was he asking me to join him in a happy place or luring me to death? I don't remember the lore, the rules of death, the penalties for broken taboos. It's been too long. Both times I saw my father, he signaled to me. That is what I remember most. First time, years ago, he was gesturing towards the Bronx. The second time, yesterday, he signaled twice, both times, up the Côte de la Montagne. Were they warnings? Instructions to make sure I joined him in the afterworld? Drown yourself quickly. The police are coming. Be careful of the people on the sidewalk. Jump now, or the men in the cafe will catch you. Or were they something else? The movements were broad, strong. A tuck, he said both times, to the right. And suddenly, like the world outside forming out of darkness, I see what he meant. Not to the right, to the east. How could I be so stupid? My father was not telling me to join him. He was telling me what to do. He wanted me to keep going, to do what I came here for. To continue to Newfoundland and find a ship to Greenland. Home. My father wants me home. I stand. My legs are not too shaky. The rest has done me some good. It'll have to be good enough. I notice a pad of paper on the dresser. The priest has left a note. Dear Minnick, I will see you for breakfast. Madame Joliet has graciously agreed to these new lodgings while the door upstairs is being repaired. I have taken the liberty of supplementing your wardrobe with some store-bought garments and something from my church's charity collection. It is hanging by the door. On a rack to my right hangs a beautiful woolen overcoat. I feel a pang of guilt as I put it on. It is a perfect fit, and I will not be able to repay the priest or even thank him in person. Pulling out the drawers, I find a new shirt and clean underwear neatly folded among my meager belongings. Quickly, I stuff them all into the valise, alongside my now dog-eared photo of my father. The sun has broken the horizon. I must leave soon. Quickly, I take a sheet from the pad of paper and write the priest a note. I cannot possibly thank you enough for your kindness. I can also never hope to fully explain what drove me to my rash act yesterday. You will read someday, if you have not already, of the way my father's body was treated after his death. But the New York Museum of Natural History keeps his bones in a drawer for study and refuses to give them back to me for a burial. I will remember you as I do my Uncle Will and Dob. 
William Wallace, and Chester Beercroft, the only people who truly cared for me. You see, I attempted to kill myself once before, but the police caught me and gave me back to Uncle Will. I stayed with him for four more years, until his money ran out and he was forced into menial jobs and smaller apartments, until he could no longer afford to educate me and had to send his own son to live with relatives. While I worked a job, temporarily, his old friend Dobb took an interest, going all the way to the White House to insist that Peary pay for my schooling. None of it worked. I cannot burden them, and you, any further. It is time to return home. I will attempt to find passage on a ship from Newfoundland to Greenland. I've missed one already, I know, but there is bound to be another. To make the money, I will work, beg, or steal. Please destroy this note, and do not attempt to stop me. In the meantime, my love and thanks. Pray for me. P.S. Before I left New York, I gave an interview to a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner, Dobbs Idea. If you can get a copy, it will tell you all in much greater detail. I sealed the envelope. It is late. I must go. Quietly, I leave the room, not watching the door for fear of waking Madame Joliet. I hold my breath to avoid coughing out my congested lungs. I turn left on Cote de la Montagne and head up the hill. It winds around to a steep, rickety staircase that leads to the haunt view, the upper town. A thin, balding man is about to climb it. I say the word train and imitate a chugging engine, and he points me, blessedly, to a location in the lower town. Rue de la Gare du Palais, he says. As I follow the old port around the confluence of the St. Lawrence and St. Charles Rivers, the train station looms like a turreted brick palace. I am surprised by the number of travelers at this hour. I head for the tracks and look in the shadows. There, squatted by an upended barrel, is a coal-faced vandal stiff, a hobo. Brigus, I say. Newfoundland. Ah, we. Oui. He gestures vaguely towards one of the trains on the sidings, then pats the ground next to him by way of invitation. I sit. Minute, I say, pointing to myself. Jean-Claude. He pulls a cigarette from his coat pocket, which I eagerly accept. But once I take a puff, I begin to cough violently. He hands me a flask, and I take a swig. The liquid is foul. I gag, spewing out the liquid in a spasm of coughing that I am afraid will turn me inside out. This gives Jean-Claude a fit of giggles, and he pulls a black oblong object from his pocket. Banane? Oui. I peel the nearly liquefied fruit and eat it slowly letting it soothe my throat. Before I know it, my head is resting on Jean-Claude's shoulder, and I am drifting off to sleep. The wetness on my shoulder wakens me. It seeps up from rocky ground where I am lying, in a puddle. I try to open my eyes, but I am facing east, and the morning sun beats down at me through a clear sky. A train whistle blasts, carried on a stiff breeze. The cold penetrates to my skin, and I realize my new coat is gone. I try to sit up, but my head is pounding. I feel a hard bump above my right ear. Along with my coat, Jean-Claude has disappeared. So is my valise, with the photograph of my father inside. I struggle to stand, but the pain in my head is like a relentless hammer blows. Holding to the side of the station, I emerge into the plaza in front of the station. The sun now blazes in the eastern sky. Uniformed footmen assist people climbing out of carriages, which line the Rue de la Guerre du Palais in both directions. The passengers, mostly men in hats and wool coats, walk purposefully toward the station entrance. 
ignoring the various hawkers that lined the way. One of the hawkers, gaunt and hunched, is holding out a coat, shouting a price, into Jean-Claude. If I approach across the plaza, he'll see me, so I retreat to the shadows and make my way around the station, emerging from the other side. I approach him silently from behind. The hurried travelers, who do not lack for fighter underwear, are ignoring his entreaties. In his left hand, he holds out the valise, which has been hidden under the draped coat. I grab the handle. Jean-Claude spins around, holding tight. He is scrappy and strong. Gendarme, he cries out. I leap up and spit, catching him in the right eye. I pull hard at both jacket and valise, but he clings tight, grimacing, stumbling. We both collapse to the ground. The coat falls across his face. I straddle his body, keeping his arms pinned to his sides. With one hand, I feel for his neck through the coat fabric and grab tight, keeping his head still. With the other hand, I press hard over his nose and mouth, smothering him until he is muffled. Gagging screams become soundless and his grip loosens. Then I take the coat and valise and run. A crowd has formed around us, but they jump aside. I hear shrill whistles, and from all corners of the plaza, blue uniforms converge on me. I reverse direction, heading west, back into the crowd. Into the confused and fearful travelers, some of the men try to reach for me, but I am too fast. I emerge from the other side. There Jean-Claude waits, legs planted, holding a knife. I stop short. Behind me, the whistles and frantic footsteps are coming nearer. I turn to look over my shoulder, and all goes black. A man. He is carrying me across the plaza. Around us, no one moves. The police, the travelers, and porters, and carriage drivers. They stand aside, stiff as ice helmets. His footsteps are light and even, and I feel as if I am riding on a sled over a new fallen snow. The congestion of the city surrounds us, but the wind is all I hear. The wind and his voice singing to me. Inovaglutic, nuna nuaminut, uterpeglic. Curled in his arms, wrapped in a warm anorak, I see only the sun's blinding glare off the river. I remember our old game, squinting at the Central Park Lake to convince ourselves we were home. I have the urge to play that game now, but I cannot. I no longer know what home is. All I do know is that I have made a mistake, that coming here to Quebec City was not the right thing to do, that being at the pension, I had read my father's signal all wrong. I apologize. He finishes a verse, then pauses. His footsteps are silent. Nusuarana, he finally asks. Are you man or spirit? It is a strange question for him to be asking me. Inusuanga, I reply. I am a man. I cannot see his face, but I know he is smiling. He continues to sing, and I, soothed and secure, fall asleep. The Church of Piri. He's coming too? Poor little thing. He's been very sick. Please, open the window. The vapors, you know. They gather. You must have air. I must be dreaming, because I hear Dobbs' voice along with the priests. And someone else. A woman. Minnick? Minnick, how are you feeling? I force my eyes open and turn onto my back. The face that peers back at me is not my father's, but the priest's. Through the haze of fading half-dreams, I see a ceiling fan turning lazily. Behind me, voices filter through the walls of my room in the pension. How are you feeling, Minnick? the priest asks. Dob is by his side. 
Morning, chum, he says. I'll bet you're hungry. I'll bet you didn't expect me for breakfast. Todd, morning. I look out the window at the bustle of workers. The yeasty smell of baking bread filters into the room, and I realize Dob is right. It is morning, and I am hungry. Am I dreaming? I ask. Dob laughs. He is robust, with a broad nose, a ready smile, and sharp eyes that leap and dance. I'd say seeing my face would qualify as a nightmare. How did I get here? You've been here for days, the priest replies. He does not know that I've been to the train station. I must have been delivered back here before he found out. But who delivered me? I remember the arms, the voice, my father's. It's like seeing God. No, there's still an early morning sky outside. I could not have made it there and back so quickly. I sink back to the pillow. It was a dream. Can't anyone see he needs some support for his head? I turn to see a tall woman whose wavy blonde hair is swept up into a hive. With one lock hanging loose in the back, she moves with an animated grace across the room, taking a pillow from the small sofa and bringing it to me. Men, she says, propping it behind my head, absolutely hopeless. Her eyes are dark and enormous. The men defer to her. Their behavior, in fact, the climate of the room itself, seems dependent on her smile. Dob clears his throat. Minnick, this is Miss Vesta Tilly, he says with an air of great expectancy. My valise, my coat, where are they, I ask. In your dresser drawer, safe and sound, the priest says, and hanging on the rack. Ah, you know, Minnick, the actress? Dob continues glancing from me to the woman uncomfortably. Vesta Tilly, the toast of Long Acre Square. Times Square is what it's called now, Chester. Miss Tilly corrects him. I know Miss Tilly's name. Most New Yorkers do. Her ramrod straight back, dark arresting eyes, and broad shoulders have earned her fame as the most skilled female performer of male roles, putting many lesser men to shame. Pleased to meet you, I say. Charmed. Miss Tilly seems considerably less in awe of herself than Dob is. Your friend Mr. Beercroft told me all about your plight, my dear which I found an inexcusable outrage. Not your actions, of course. However misguided they may be, they are entirely understandable given the way you have been treated all your life. But the fact that that dreadful husk of a man, Peary, will not give you safe passage to your ancestral home. As I told Mr. Beercroft, if it's merely the means you require in order to retrieve the child, I'm nothing if not a woman of both ways and means. And in fact, I plan personally to escort you to his door. And well, here we are. May I get you something to drink? I feel compelled to applaud, but restrain myself. Yes, please, I say. Miss Tilly walks out the door, into the street, and around to the cafe. I can hear her shouts of garçon, vite, vite, through the wall. When Mr. Green alerted me to the newspaper coverage of your case, the priest explains, and I read about your letter to Mr. Beercroft last afternoon, I made it my task to contact him by the telephone. He was grateful for news of your whereabouts, and left within hours. Thanks to the remarkable Miss Tilly, says Dobb, who traveled all night by train, and she remained quite awake. Mr. Wallace, I might add, has been contacted too, the priest says. He was utterly relieved to know you were alive. He was grateful for our intervention. Your Uncle Will had a notion you may be trying to reach Ottawa. 
board commander Radford's ship, Dom goes on. For that would have taken you to the northern lands of Canada, hardly close to your home. I wanted Captain Bartlett's relief ship for Dr. Cook, I say, but I did not move fast enough. That voyage has left already. I thought I might try my luck in Brigus, a whaler, perhaps. Oh, good heavens, my boy. Any whaler from Newfoundland would not take you near Smith Sound. You would have ended up a thousand miles from your home, with no family or means of travel. Dob pounds his fist on the dresser. Confound it, Minnick. The old boys in Peary's little Arctic club, the scientists at the museum, their treatment of you has not been barbaric. It's been inhuman. Little wonder you've been driven to this. I was hoping you'd stay in the States and go to college. If you want to go home, so be it. But you must do it the right way. And what is that, Dob? Miss Tilly barges cheerfully through the door, carrying a tray with a streaming basket of pastries and jam, a pot of coffee, and four stacked cups. A hearty meal for all, she says, quickly setting up a breakfast area on the dresser. Dob hands me a croissant and takes one for himself. Now Miss Tilly and I discussed this matter on the way here, and as we see it, the responsibility for you lies wholly in the hands of Mr. Peary. As you no doubt know, Peary has created for himself a certain theatrical aura, adds Miss Tilly, the national hero, America's own Robert Falcon Scott, of course. No one here actually sees what he does in the Arctic, very convenient for him, of course. Nevertheless, to finance his expeditions, he must keep this image unblemished, solid as pack ice. What government can refuse to fund a living legend? What private investor does not benefit from association with him? What he did to you was a tragedy, but to Peary, it was bad publicity. Dob continues, and he is a master of publicity. First, he keeps himself out of the States, where he might be challenged. Then, taking precious time from his terribly important exploration, he crafts a sincere, well-wrought letter to the newspaper, nobly taking full responsibility. That, of course, is his last comment on the matter, which is left by default in the hands of the Museum of Natural History. But it was the museum, not Peary, that took my father's body away, I reply. Dob nods, and they should be taken to task. But you see, Minnick, it is Peary who has the power to send you back home. Perhaps you can appeal to his Christian charity, says the priest. Peary's charity extends to the Church of Peary and no further, Dob replies. I believe it will take publicity. I told you that before you left, Minnick. That is why we set up that interview with the examiner. You could have waited for that to be published before traipsing up to Canada. I've been squawking to the press on your behalf this month, too. By God. Er, pardon me, Father. Miss Tilly clears your throat. Chester, your manners. Dob, it won't do any good, I say. Peary won't read it all the way in the Arctic. But his wife is in New York, Dob says. She covers his affairs like a hawk. Both she and he would like nothing more than for the case of Minnick Wallace to disappear. And these articles will do just the opposite. Just what he wants least. The more we throw at him, you see, the more we'll get. The public has heard the story of your father. Somehow Peary has weathered that so far, but we will of course hammer it home from coast to coast. But if we had something more, some new chink in the Peary armor, I do see. I see very clearly. I have been a fool. All along I have been playing directly into the hands of Robert Peary. Everything I have done recently, fleeing New York with no money, 
contracting pneumonia, putting my fate in the hands of strangers, attempting suicide. Fury could not have planned it better himself. How convenient that no one can see what he does in the Arctic. Isn't that what you said, Miss Tilly? I believe you may be paraphrasing, she replies, but yes, that is the gist. How convenient. How very convenient indeed. Fury's reputation may be solid as pack ice, but even pack ice, with the right pressure, can crack. Out of curiosity, I feel the side of my head. The bump is still there. In Usuwanga, I know exactly what to do. Blackmail. Very good to see you. Thank you for coming, says Miss Tilly to the world reporter, then politely closes the door to Dob Sweet at the hotel S door behind him. She turns with a devilish smile. Well, how was it? Did you give it to Peary? I smile. I just told the truth, that's all. The New York Times, the World, the Evening Mail. You must be exhausted. Not as much as you appear to be. Well, it's a good thing Mr. Beercroft is a professional publicist. The reporters are flocking here. Then again, I suppose the story itself is not hard to sell. The door flies open and Dob rushes in. Oh my boy, are you sitting down? You are a genius. I have never seen Dob so excited. He is brandishing a newspaper. A two-page spread, Minnick. We couldn't have bought publicity like this. He lays an open copy of the San Francisco Examiner on the living room coffee table. The sight of it makes me flinch. On the right-hand page is a dreadful drawing of a dark young man in knickers, obviously meant to represent me, striking a pose of horror in front of a glass case containing a skeleton, at whose feet is a placard reading, Skeleton of an Eskimo, presented by Robert Peary. But my father's skeleton was never on display, I say. The bones are in storage. Dob shrugs. Ah, oh, well, it's about time someone stretched the truth on your behalf. The headline spans both pages. Why Arctic Explorer Peary's neglected Eskimo boy wants to shoot him. The pathetic appeal of little mean Wallace, who was brought to New York in the interest of science, turned adrift after all of his unhappy relatives had died here, and he had seen his father's skeleton grin at him from a glass case in the Museum of Natural History, and who has abandoned civilization because he cannot get it tested. When Commander Robert E. Peary returned in 1897 from one of his expeditions into the Arctic, he brought back to New York five Eskimos in the interest of science. I told the reporter, six Eskimos, I say. Job is pacing the room, shaking his head. To think, you gave this brilliant interview before you left, and you almost wasted it by trying to, well, go on. I read aloud. All of these unfortunates are dead, except one, a little Eskimo lad, now 19 years old, and called Mean Wallace. Now this lad, long since abandoned to his own devices by Peary, who refused to take him back to the north when he called last year, rescued from the Museum of Natural History, and since living upon the charity of his few friends, has run away. He was driven by a double desire to return to his Greenland home and seek redress from the explorer. This poor, outraged little savage has learned to speak English with remarkable fluency. I skimmed the rest. The bulk of the piece is my interview, which has been given by the byline by Mean Wallace, last survivor of Peary's wretched Eskimos. 
Dove looks over my shoulder. Did you really say I would shoot Mr. Peary and the museum director? Only I want them to see how much more civilized just as savage Eskimo is than their enlightened white selves. I was angry, I reply. Ha! Inspired. Dove claps me on the back. Well, already we are seeing some encouraging results. I've just spoken to the Danish consul, who has been following your case for a while, and he is extremely interested in these latest developments. And I have received word from none other than Mrs. Peary. She has been vexed by the examiner article. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, says Miss Tilly. In addition, Dodd says with an impish smile, I have the news we have all been waiting for. The child, Miss Tilly says, Peary's child, a boy, Dodd replies. Kalipalak, born three years ago, on board the Roosevelt. And the mother? Was it a Lake Asina? I asked. Sounds right, old fellow. But I have a dreadful time with those names. Dobb hands me my coat. I believe Mrs. Peary has always suspected this, and I have just gotten word that she would like to see us post-haste. I have invited your Uncle Will to join us. Hoo-hoo! There is a relief ship for Peary leaving in a month's time, and you, dear chum, will be on it. Dobb, I need to think about this, I say. Oh, good God, Minnick. This is your ticket. But the Eskimos, offering wives to tradition... Not a sin the way it is here, I stammer. It's blackmail, says Dobb brightly. It's the least we can do. The Peary Arctic Club occupies a small brick building on East 17th Street. A stuffed bear greets us inside the front door, looking rather upset by its adopted habit of polished oak walls, brass spittoons, and thick red leather armchairs. The smell of tobacco seems to have displaced much of the oxygen and a chandelier fashioned of antlers and electric light bulbs does do much to dispel the gloom. Great fuss is made over allowing Miss Tilly into a men's club, but the attendant eventually leads us up a wide staircase to a second-floor landing. A door is open to our right, and we are ushered into a large common room with shuttered windows and a roaring fireplace. Ah, mean, let me take a look at you. A walrus of a man approaches across the faded carpet, his footsteps springy and light for a man his size. I've met Herbert Bridgman before, mostly in the company of Mr. Jessup. He is gray now, but fit and barrel-chested, with a deep cleft in his chin and mustaches that resemble a co-watcher-catcher in the front of a locomotive. A fine young man, Kusana, the word for handsome, has clearly taken a feat of memorization. I bow gratefully and reply, Avatak. It means seal bladder, but Mr. Bridgman smiles with gratitude. Mrs. Peary rises from their chair stiffly. Her eyes are unwavering, her thin lips yielding just slightly from their horizontal into a smile. Mean, she says with a bow, Mr. Beercroft, Mr. Wallace, and... I don't believe we've met, madam. Perhaps across the footlights... Tilly, Vesta Tilly, of course. The attendant has pulled up seats from us around a wooden table in front of the fireplace. Mrs. Peary does not offer her hand to any of us. When she sits, we sit. To the point, then, Mr. Bridgman says. As you may remember, Wallace, back in 99, I was the one who first suggested that Mean come north of me on a summer supply ship to Greenland. Yes, Uncle Will says but he was too ill at the time to travel. 
after which, by all accounts, he became a beloved member of the Wallace family and took wonderfully to life here in New York. Isn't that true, Mean? I was happy with Uncle Will. Well, there, then. What is all this fuss now about revenge and returning home? An educated young man like you, Mean, retreating to a life of deprivation and illiteracy? Tell me, do you remember your language? It is a good question. I have not spoken more than a few Eskimo words to anyone in years. I suppose I could pick it up. From whom? Do you have a family to return to? No. Tell me, Mean. Do you fancy raw seal? Because that's about all they eat up there. I, uh, the truth is, I don't remember what it tastes like. Not to mention kiviok. Do you recall that? Dead ox. Sewn into a seal intestine. And left for two months to rot. Eaten raw, remember? The Eskimos say it's like candy. Herbert, please, mutters Mrs. Peary. Do you fend for yourself? Wait by the breathing hole for a seal with your harpoon? Stalk a polar bear, who may also be stalking you in the blinding snow? Hunt a walrus? Because you'll need those skills to survive. The nearest vegetable and fruit market would be Copenhagen, I suppose. I look at Dob and Uncle Will. They seem as much as a lost for words as I am. I will re need to relearn some skills, I admit. Oh, I dare say yes, Mr. Bridgman replies, especially considering your skills and your language development were those of an eight-year-old when you left. And as you know, the Eskimos do not take kindly to an adult tribe member who does not pull his weight. My dear Mr. Bridgman, says Miss Tilly, do I detect a threatening tone? I am merely concerned for the boy's welfare, and I have a proposition. Mr. Bridgman sits in an easy chair and lights up a pipe. I will help in a concrete, constructive way. I will agree to spread the word among my many colleagues, inquiring about a job for a strong young man, perhaps something in New England, cold country, logging or road building, near a town with a good library. Sound good? And in return, I ask, you allow a printed retraction to everything you said, then drop all contact with the press. I have not come expecting this, but Mr. Bridgman may be right. How will I adjust? I am a New Yorker now. I remember seeing my father kill a seal, but I haven't the foggiest idea how to do it myself. I love steak, medium well done. I eat pork roast and lamb chops, but real seal? Kiviok? Steady minute, whispers Dob. I object, Mr. Bridgman, Miss Tilly says. You have done your best to thoroughly intimidate this young man, and I am outraged. The footlights are off, Miss Tilly, interrupts Mrs. Peary. And tell me, these threats to my husband and the national press, what would you call them, if not intimidation? Uncle Will finally speaks up. Your husband is an extraordinary man. His bravery is unmatched, and the country will forever be in debt for his discoveries. Surely, with all his organizational skills, can arrange for a voyage north for this young man. It is expensive to mount a relief ship. There's never enough room for even the essentials, Miss Puriat says. Even so, Mean has been given opportunities to go home throughout his life. He turned them all down. Others were making decisions for me then, I explain. I am a man now. I would like passage on the genie. I will work to earn my keep. Mrs. Peary's jaw tightens. I'm afraid not. For one thing, the ship is already so far over capacity that I cannot board. And even if it were not, 
You accuse my husband of all manner of despicable crimes while he is not here to defend himself, and then announce to the entire country that you intend to shoot him. You expect me to grant this wish? With all respect to the company present, I will not be blackmailed over my dead body. Mr. Bridgman, lead them out. Dobb leaps to his feet. Mrs. Peary, no offense meant to you, but when I see your husband, I will tell the truth to his face. That he is a scoundrel, a liar, a slave driver, and an adulterer. A what? Miss Peary says. See here, Mr. Beercroft. Mr. Bridgman steps in front of him, but Dobb is turning quickly the color of the hearth flames. How long before a photograph of the little one is revealed? Who will notice the features on the baby's face? Those remorseless blue eyes set in the skin of an Eskimo. Dobb. I grab his arm and pull him away. Uncle Will closes behind me, blocking Dobb from Mr. Bridgman, whose fists are clenched. Miss Tilly is at the door, fanning herself. All I want to do is leave. Once again, everything has gone wrong. I realize now that I've just sealed my fate. I will be in New York forever. No matter what I do, I cause pain and chaos to everyone around me. I can't bear it. I want it to stop. The ring of a telephone in the corner breaks the silence. Mr. Bridgman turns away. I look over to Mrs. Peary, who has sunk into a leather chair. I walk to her and kneel. Mrs. Peary, I am truly sorry. I will never, ever say a word or do anything to hurt you or your husband. Minute, Dobbs sweaters. Neither will Mr. Beercroft or Miss Tilly, I continue. I promise. She does not reply, but I do not expect her to. The attendant who has entered the room to answer the telephone, now calls out. Mr. Bridgman, for you, for Danish Consul. Mr. Bridgman's eyes are on me as he takes the receiver. You're a good man, Mean, he says, but I would choose my associates more carefully in the future. Yours have, alas, been you in. Dob is standing by the doorway, trembling. I take him by the arm, and we leave. Home. Courtesy of the Peary Arctic Club. Uncle Will reads from a sheet he has pulled from a box that has arrived by postal messenger. I pull out two small leather bags. They are a medical kit and a set of dentist tools. We both stare at them for a moment, then burst out laughing. Extending the frontiers of 20th century science to Smith's sound, says Uncle Will. I close the kits and shove them into my suitcase. I have packed selectively. One pair of leather boots although I know I will learn to make hammocks, polar bearskin boots, a wool hat, my favorite full-length overcoat, given to me by the priest, volumes of Dickens, Thackeray, Fielding, and Melville, and of course, candy and peanuts. I will undoubtedly throw most of it away, but for a while it will remind me of my life in New York. The carriage will arrive in an hour, says Uncle Will. His voice is subdued. It is July, and I have had nearly two months to adjust, but it still seems too bizarre to be real. When I left the Periarctic Club, I was speechless, devastated. Dobb kept trying to cheer me up with vows that he would continue the fight. Bridgman is nothing more than a glorified secretary and bodyguard anyway, he claimed. Dobb treated me to a night at the theater, seeing Miss Tilly, who introduced me to the entire audience. I had adjusted to the idea of staying in New York, and begun inquiries into working on the new subway system, laying track. After a week spent on the receiving end of baleful stares, 
and cutting comments from workers. I came home to a telegraph from Mr. Bridgman. Opening has arisen on board Jenny. Stop offer crew position to mean. Stop immediate reply requested. And that was that. No explanation, no visit. Naturally, Uncle Will and I made a call at East 70th Street to say thanks, but neither Miss Bridgen nor Mrs. Peary was there. We left a message, but have not heard back. I will never know what changed their minds. Dobb is convinced his threat worked. Miss Tilly assumed it was the call from the Danish consul. Uncle Will believes that my kindness to Mrs. Peary softened her. I will never know. Miss Tilly has begun writing a one-woman play about the subject. She intends to play Mrs. Peary. I am rather glad that if and when this is ever produced, I will be long gone. I will admit I am afraid. I do not know if anyone in Smith Sound will remember me. I wonder if they will welcome me as a returning villager or shun me for leaving. I wonder if I will like them. I wonder if they will like me. In the past few weeks, I have had little sleep. My father has visited me in dreams once or twice, but I can never quite understand what he is trying to say. Perhaps, as I get closer to home, I will know. May the living return to the land they hold dear. I think of my father's song often. In the end, those words have guided me. I know I am doing the right thing. Still, leaving Uncle Will is terribly hard. He is avoiding eye contact. He sniffles often making excuses about a summer cold. He has continued to apologize at least a thousand times for the wrongs he has committed. I have forgiven him. I hope that others do too for the wrongs he committed at the museum. From out front comes the hollow pounding of horses' hooves. As I grab my suitcase, Uncle Will runs to the window and looks out. Not yet, he says. There are visitors. He pulls open the door and hurries outside. Visitors? On the day we are to say goodbye, I follow him to a large carriage that has pulled up to the lawn. A young man in his early twenties emerges. He has broad shoulders and a bit of a belly. Well, well, he says, if it isn't my old stepbrother, looking like a Connecticut Yankee in King Kizik's igloo, it takes me a moment to realize who it is. Willie! I nearly fall over the front stoop, running to embrace him. You got so fat. Congratulations. It'll happen to you, too when you get married and sit around the house eating in utter bliss. He turns to help a lovely and very pregnant raven-haired young lady out of the carriage. I feel my jaw drop to my chest. The years have only perfected what seemed perfect in the first place. Hell, the word catches in my throat. Hello, Miss Hilda. Willie shakes his head. The fan tods, even at this age. Oh, Minnick, Matilda says. How can we apologize enough? not having seen you in all these years. She wraps her arms around me, but her bulging abdomen gets in the way. Well, I see you've been busy, I remark. I'm due this week, she says shyly. It's a boy, name it Kizuk, I blurt out. We'll take that under advisement, Willie says, looking out into the street. Say, when is your carriage coming? Fifteen minutes, Uncle Will replies. Let my driver take you instead, Willie suggests. Matilda will have to stay and rest, of course, but you and I can talk about old times, and I can give you marriage advice, which you can use in Greenland. They do marry in Greenland, don't they? Oh, Matilda exclaims, I brought something for you. She reaches into her bag and hands me a small wrapped box. Thank you. Open it, right here. 
I untied the red ribbon, then carefully unfold the paper, and remove the box lid. Inside is the oddest looking figure I have ever seen, sewn together on what looks like scraps of cloth and scorched leather. I pull it out into the light, and I look into a face I have mourned since I was a boy. Canoe-a-luck. I hold him to my face and breathe in. Through the faint stink of old gunpowder, I can smell the world of my childhood. Hunting. Kayaks. Icebergs. The beast. The biscuits. Anigito. It all rushes back to me. How? Where did you... The day I blew him up. I collected all the scraps I could, Lily says. I kept going back to look. I vowed I would find all of him and make canoe luck like new. He didn't, of course, Matilda adds, and he gave up on the idea. But when we were married, I found the scraps in this drawer. I told him we should construct your old friend. Just fill in the blanks with materials from our house. He's changed, huh? asks Willie. He has. He looks odd in his new part Eskimo, part American form. But he is still canoe luck, still smiler. His soul, I reply, is the same. We have little time for goodbyes, and it is truly sad to see Uncle Will cry for the first time. But as I head away across the Macombs Dam Bridge, I realize how much smaller it seems to me than it did a few years ago. How much of the landscape I have memorized. How the smell of the air, which was once so close and suffocating, now seems fresh and familiar. We keep up a steady stream of talk down Broadway remarking on the feverish pace of building that has reached even this rural corner of the island. And as we travel down the west side of the park, just outside the Museum of Natural History, I lean close to the window and look to my left. The tree canopies are a lush summer green, but as we pass over a bridge, I hold canoe luck up to the window, and I squint. For a moment, in the glare of the morning light, the lake looks like a vast bay, its bank a rocky shore. What are you looking at? Lily says with a laugh. Nothing, I say. But it's there. I see it. It looks like home.